I wish my words were written down. I wish they were written in a book. Wish they were cut into lead with an iron tool. Wish they were carved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand on the earth. Though my skin will be destroyed, in my body I'll see God. Myself will see him with my own eyes. Thank you, Jaden. Y'all may be seated. So our passage this morning, as Jaden just read, is Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. And from that uh, passage, I'll preach today from the title, Redemption in the Flesh. Redemption in the Flesh. uh, Jerry, I know I joked around telling you to land the plane, but thank you for teaching our kids so well. Thank you for your uh, passion and insight, and it's fun to see our, our, our children so engaged. Um, we're, we're grateful for uh, all of you who serve our children so, so well. Redemption in the flesh. I want to start by asking you to do something that may feel a little bit vulnerable, maybe a little uncomfortable. I want to ask that you would bring to mind family members and friends, people you love deeply, who have passed away. I'm remembering, personally, my grandmother, my mom's mom, who we will memorialize in Washington State next month. I'm also remembering my Uncle Kelly, who died on New Year's Eve a couple of years ago. We got word of his passing from COVID on New Year's Eve, just as we were walking over to a park where we joined others of our neighbors making paper lanterns illuminated with small candles to commemorate that uh, trying and terrible year. Standing at a distance in the dark from the glowing lanterns, I couldn't help imagining that each one represented someone special, someone who had passed during those first frightening months of the pandemic. It is a strange thing remembering our beloved ones who have passed through death. When first grieving, you may find yourself surrounded by well-wishers and communities of care. Cards arrive regularly in the mail and friends offer to bring dinner. But as time passes, grief can feel isolating. Everyone else appears to have moved on. But you find yourself wrecked at unpredictable and sometimes inopportune moments. The early Christians experienced death differently than their neighbors. It's not that they did not grieve or miss their deceased friends and family members. But since their Savior himself had passed through death into life, and because his resurrection guaranteed their own, the early Christians could remember their loved ones in Christ with hope. And so rather than ignoring the grief of death, those early Christians found a way to wade into it in order to remember the hope that is ours, a hope which even death cannot steal. Many Christians around the world today recognize the first Sunday in November as All Saints Day. Originally, it was a way to honor those exemplary Christian women and men of the past whose lives point us powerfully to Christ. 
to those remembrances were later added the recollection of more, let's call them ordinary saints, where the church was invited to purposefully remember their loved ones, to acknowledge the grief which remains, while also rejoicing in the resurrection hope to which their lives point. On this All Saints Sunday, as we remember our loved ones, we hear Job's proclamation of hope pressing its way through layers of suffering and loss. After my skin has been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, who I shall see by my side and shall behold with my eyes." Job's story is a tragic one up to this point. Everything he owned, those he most loved, had all been taken from him. His friends, rather than simply being with him in his grief, instead tried to convince Job that there is something wrong with him, something he must have done to provoke God for his tragedy. But in these few verses, the verses that Jaden read for us, from the depths of his sorrow and suffering, Job declared that God would redeem him. Now, when I remember the Christians who I have known and loved, the ordinary saints who have passed away, redemption is one of the major themes I find in their lives. In the Bible, to redeem someone means to to free them from a legal obligation or to deliver them from a desperate situation. If you were deeply in debt and unable to pay your bills, and then some distant relative sends you a check to cover all of your financial obligations, you would be redeemed. If you were stuck in a dysfunctional workplace with a manipulative and a conniving boss. And then your company was bought out and management replaced. And now you're working with a a generous supervisor and motivated co-workers. And you've got the option to work from home. Somebody say amen. And all of the vacation time you could ever want. And fair compensation, you would be redeemed. If you forgot about that test you were supposed to be studying for, and I know none of our children or youth have ever had this experience. If you, if you forgot about that test you were supposed to be studying for until you're getting dropped off for school, when all of a sudden it hits you like a ton of bricks and you find your palms getting sweaty and your heart starting to race, trying to remember whatever it was that you were supposed to have been studying only to walk into that dreaded classroom and find, glory be to God, a substitute teacher who has absolutely no idea that you were supposed to be taking a test that day, you would be redeemed. When you have been redeemed, you have been vindicated, you have been restored, you have been reconciled. The stuff that had started to spin apart, gets held together. 
And what Job's testimony reminds us of and what the dead in Christ testify to is that the redemption which we each long for, the redemption that every one of us needs is found most fully in Jesus Christ. More than rescuing us from financial troubles or workplace incompetence or homework forgetfulness. In Christ, God is redeeming the universe, which includes you and me. This is the hope that I pray we rest in this morning. God redeems his people. Can you say that after me? God redeems his people. Now, it doesn't always seem, it doesn't always feel, it does not always look as though God redeems his people. I think that's the state of mind Job is in when he begins this passage. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. No, wait, no, wait. Oh, that an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. Job wants a permanent testimony to his situation. Job wants to be vindicated from the grave. Maybe that sounds strange, but I actually think that most of us can relate to this. We understand what it is like to be in an unwanted, unjust, unfair situation which feels permanent. Where it feels as though there is no hope for our redemption. Some of our young people understand what it feels like to be stifled by parents who aren't really listening to what you're trying to say. And it seems as though we're never going to listen to what you're trying to say. Some of us know the the deep felt desire to be married, a desire that so far has been unmet. Others of you know what it is to be gaslit by your extended family. This is, of course not just a personal experience, it can be structural in nature as well. I remember a few years ago after yet another public traumatic instance of racist police brutality, gathering with a handful of the African-American members of this church, sitting in someone's living room for a a time of conversation and prayer and lament. And I remember one of our more seasoned saints saying something like, how long, O Lord? I I wish there were somewhere I could go to feel safe. And yet, as I look around the world, I can imagine no place that I could go. Job wants vindication, and yet his tragedy feels permanent. We know that feeling. I don't deserve this. Things shouldn't be this way. It's not fair. And yet it seems permanent. And so Job's best hope and prayer is for future vindication. Chisel it in stone. Fill it in with lead so that future generations can know that I was vindicated. Some of us, as we remember the loved ones we have lost, We ache for a restoration that they did not seem to experience in this life. The parent who should have had more time with their grandchildren. The child who should be known for more than their addiction. The friend who never quite accomplished their dreams. 
And so like Job, we would do well to turn our hopes to that future redemption promised by Christ, the hope of heaven. We can entrust our beloved to the arms of our Savior, where until the resurrection of all things, they rest with their creator. They have been redeemed. Some of you carry a burden, carry a a sense of responsibility that it is up to you to vindicate those you have lost to death. In your own ways, you are trying to chisel a testimony into stone. So I want to remind us this morning that those beloved friends and family members already have a vindicator. That you do not need to chisel their name into stone because their names have been written already in our God's book of life. We can release them to the trusting arms of our Savior. Because you see, even death cannot stop God from redeeming his people. Amen? Now, we might stop there. And I would kind of expect Job to stop there. Life for Job and for some of us this morning can feel so hard that the the redemption promised to us in God's good resurrection future is, is all that we would dare to hope for. All that Job would think possible. And yet, interestingly, this is, this is not what happens in our passage. Job goes on in verse 25 to say, I know that my vindicator, my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but it's a little shocking to me, actually. I would expect that that Job would simply resign himself to some future redemption. Everything that Job cared about has been taken from him. Everybody Job loved has been lost. His friends are just salt in his wounds. There is no evidence that Job could point to that his life is ever going to get better. His situation seems permanent. And perhaps worse of all, God has been silent. And so I would expect that Job would simply content himself with God's future redemption. In Bible study this past week, Valerie taught about the dark night of the soul. We're reading a book uh, alongside of our Bible study called The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And this past week, the theme was on journeying through the wall, which is another way of talking about what Christians have described as the dark night of the soul. Let, Let me read to you a couple of sentences from this book. Pete Scazzaro writes, For most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. We question ourselves, God, and the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We don't know where God is, what he is doing, where he is going, how he is getting us there, or when this will all be over. I wonder if any honest people can admit to having experienced the dark night of the soul. Job, though, 
testifies that even from the depths of that dark night, God is still present. Now, St. John of the Cross, writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, was, was one of the first to, to use this language of the dark night of the soul for this common Christian experience. And one of the things he writes about the dark night is this. He says, let those experiencing the dark night trust in God who does not fail those who seek him with a simple and righteous heart. Nor will he fail to impart what is needful for the way until getting them to the clear and pure light of love. St. John says that, that even in the dark night of the soul, God is present and available to those who will rest in him. In the dark night, Job hangs on to the presence of God. Now, now, now Job began with that future orientation. One day I will be vindicated. But then he finds that the, the hope of the future starts encroaching into his present. That, that, that God's hope is not a respecter of tenses, uh, past or future or present. It's as though Job says, if, if God can vindicate me after death, then why would I lose hope for redemption in this life? Job's hope, his hope in the middle of suffering, foreshadows the hope that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that, that, that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. You see, what Job could only hint at, we on this side of the resurrection can proclaim boldly that because God will redeem his people, we can expect that future redemption to break into our lives today. That the resurrection of Jesus accomplishes something for us, not just in the future, but in the present moment as well. There was a a moment where Jesus was confronted by some religious leaders who were trying to trap him. And so they put this question of the resurrection to Jesus. And Jesus then quotes from Exodus to say, to remind those leaders that there was a time when God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus goes on. He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. The living God is the God of the living. Now, the living are the dead in Christ, who are now safely with Christ, and who will be resurrected with Christ. Amen? And the living are also us. This is what Job, living long before the birth of Jesus, intuited about his God. If God will be God when he is dead, then surely even in this season of suffering, God is God in the land of the living. So so, so let me remind us this morning that the God we worship is not a God made by human hands. He is not a God of our own imagining or constructing. There is no temple which can contain the creator God. There is no image which can capture his likeness. There are no sacrifices worthy of his holiness, majesty, and power. I hope I'm preaching to two or three of you this morning. 
the, the, the God we gather to worship every Lord's day is the living God. This is the God who is the source of all that is, all that was, and all that will ever be. This God just is life. There is no living of any kind outside of his creative genius. So full of life is our God that his words accomplish mighty deeds. His commands call entire galaxies into existence. His breath shapes the dust of the earth into women and men who bear his divine image. Now, I know very well that some of you have been crying out for redemption. You have got some very real situations in your life which need divine restoration. You stand before slanderers and gossips and long for the vindication of your God. You've been reviewing your bank statement or your water bill or your student loan debt and you long for the vindication of your God. You survey an uncertain future littered with very real questions about healing and provision and companionship and you long for the vindication of your God. You feel the ache of chronic pain, the quiet sadness of depression, the untimely visits made by trauma, and you long for the vindication of your God. And while I will certainly not claim to know how God is acting in your life, I am confident of this. I am confident in joining the saints who've tasted of the living God's redemption from their own desperate wilderness places. I am confident in claiming the promises of God for you this morning. You will know redemption in the land of the living because you serve the living God. Let's not be confused about it. It is not up for you to redeem yourself. Redemption is not a self-help project. It is not a spiritual feeling you conjure up on your own. You will not redeem your circumstances through the efforts of your own righteousness. Rather, keep crying out to the living God. Keep seeking the living God. Keep waiting on the living God. Keep lamenting to the living God. Keep resting in the living God. From whatever dark night you find yourself in this morning, keep worshiping, keep praising, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep meditating on the presence of the living God. With whatever bit of faith you have, keep leaning in to the living God. Now, as soon as I say that, there's a handful of you who take yourself out of the game altogether because you say the bit that I have is not enough. I, I, I know that, that, that for some of us, your faith may seem too tiny, too tattered, too tenuous. Compared to the faith of others, you cannot imagine how God would do anything with the seemingly small amount of faith you come with today. And yet I wonder if there's anybody this morning who can testify to the wonders of what God can do with a few loaves 
and a few fish. What God can do with just the smallest bit of yeast or the microscopic mustard seed. I wonder if any of us this morning can testify to the living God who takes the weak and foolish things of this world to accomplish his purposes. So you see, because God is no respecter of the size of your faith. Can I say it again? God is no respecter of the size of your faith. Let me press you just a little bit further this morning. To every situation which has come against you, would you lift your voice with Job and say to that situation, I know that my vindicator lives. When the accuser seeks to weigh you down with guilt and shame, lift your voice with whatever little bit of faith you have to say, I know that my reconciler lives. When it seems as though you've once again found yourself going through the valley of the shadow of death, lift your voice in faith beyond the shadows to proclaim, I know that my restorer lives. When you've suffered far too long under the weight of insidious injustice, when the the wickedness of this world has you gasping for air, when your very body is manifesting the traumas of a society built on exploitation and plunder, let the breath of the living God once again fill your lungs that you might join the chorus of the saints singing that song, I know That my Redeemer lives. The living God redeems his people. And then again, I would think that would be enough for Job. (laughs) Okay, God. Okay, But he presses in even further. And after my skin has been destroyed, then in my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I shall see on my side and my eyes shall behold. Job's hope has shifted from the future to to a present hope to now something even closer. In my flesh, I will see God. Job has found himself stumbling into the deep and mysterious riches of the life of faith. God's redemption is not bottled up until we have made it through the pain, the suffering, and the grief. I'm going to say that again. God's redemption is not bottled up until we've made it on the other side of the suffering, the loss, and the grief. Rather, God's redemption is available to us in the pain the suffering, and the grief. Can anybody bear witness to that this morning? Job has lost everything. Everything. The fact that you are here this morning in your right mind, fully in your body, with people around you who love you, mean that you have lost less than Job did. (laughs) Job has lost absolutely everything. And yet, he is bold enough to claim that none of that loss, none of the trauma, none of the despair is enough to keep him from his God, whom I shall see on my side 
and my eyes behold. Because here is what Job found from the very depths of the dark night. And here is what the saints who have gone before us testify to this morning. Please hear this. The ultimate redemption that we need is not getting what we think we need. The ultimate redemption is God himself. Redemption just is God. I know you want to be redeemed of your grief. Of course you do. But redemption is present even as we grieve because God is with us in our grief. I know you want to be redeemed from your struggle with sin. Of course. But God, the Redeemer, is present with you in the struggle with sin. I know we want to be redeemed out of our systemically unjust society. Of course, of course, of course. But the saints who have gone before us testify that redemption can be found amidst the rubble of oppression because God has made his home among the oppressed. God is your redemption. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures that nothing and nobody can keep you from your God. I hope you're getting this. What is it specifically that that, that you want God to redeem in your life? What is the thing? What is the situation? What is the person? What is the longing? What is the regret that you want God to redeem in your life? Job got to the point where he wanted God more than he wanted anything God would do. And can I suggest that for most of us, the only way we get to the point of wanting God more than anything God will do is by being led by God into the dark night of the soul. By being led by God into the wilderness. Derek, I know that's not, no one wants to go into the wilderness. But for most of us, the grace of the wilderness, the grace of the dark night, is that we will come to love God more than anything we want God to do for us. How might you take one step, two steps in that direction this morning to be able to hold before God all of your sorrows, all of your longings, while yet desiring nothing less than God himself? By not being content with anything less than God himself, who offers Himself to you in Jesus as your redemption. God redeems his people. And you will know his redemption in the land of the living because you are known and loved by God today. Zach, would you mind jumping up? Thanks. God redeems his people. 
the ordinary saints who you miss deeply today, no matter how many years beyond their passing. They have been redeemed into the loving arms of their creator. Their redemption testifies to us of the God who is in the business of vindicating, restoring, and reconciling his people. God just is a redeeming God. So with Job, we can stand amidst times of suffering and sorrow and proclaim our Savior's redemption. And not just one day when we will see our God face to face. No, Christ Jesus has already moved his reign of redemption into our neighborhoods. So with Job, we can say confidently to everything and everyone who would try to claim our lives, I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side and my eyes shall behold. And so we come to the communion table this morning, as we always do in the company of our sisters and our brothers. But I want us to remember this morning the, 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 the larger fellowship of believers to whom we belong. What the author of Hebrews calls that great cloud of witnesses. As you come to receive again the bread and the cup, the body and the blood, I'm asking you to bring your thirst for redemption with you this morning. Bring your hunger for restoration with you this morning. And as you receive the body and the blood, be reminded again, encounter again, taste again that God offers you redemption, not in some temporary or passing solution. God offers you himself. So be satisfied again today in the redemption that is the God who gives himself to you. Let's pray. Redeeming God, we bring before you all of our hopes of restoration, of reconciliation, of vindication, of redemption. You are the living God of the living and not the dead. So we take courage in the witness of those who've gone before us, who testify even now to the restoration which is found in you alone. We place our faith in you again today. Some of us feel our faith holding us up. Others of us as though it is slipping through our fingers. And so we trust, we choose to trust that whatever shape we find our faith in today, it is more than enough for you. Give us renewed minds to know that you are our redemption. Give us purified desires to want to know, to want you more than we want anything else. Give us the opportunity to praise you the restoring, the reconciling, the redeeming God in the land of the living. In the name of Jesus, we pray.